Hello, and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I'm Dave. My name is Chris. It sure is. Yep. I'm tired. We got have been rushing and rushing to get here, and oh, shit. What's the matter, Chris? My vape is leaking everywhere. Is it? Can you do anything about that? I can. Well, continue. We um, were just in the car for a long time, which in my mind would ruin an episode because we spent so much time talking in the car. It's like we should figure out a way to record in the car. Well, we could just bring the laptop and push record. Why didn't we do that? There's a lot of noise in a car. Um, so yeah, we've been rushing and we have a, ge- a special guest we, coming on. We don't. We, we will not have the special guest, so I'd rather not get them up for a, a, a non-special guest. Okay. So what do you want to talk about? I want to talk about recording in the car. Oh. How could we record in the car? Uh, you just push record. But with all that noise... Be fine. I recorded the. Uh, remember when I had to delete part of that episode? Yeah. I recorded that in my car. It sounds horrible, though. <laughs> yeah, but it sounds horrible just because I sound like an idiot. Yeah, I'm glad you, you agree with it me. It is on bad. That I've been talking to Dave for a couple hours. We basically just we already ruined did everything. two episodes of Dopey. Did we? Nothing left to say. What did we talk about that was interesting? You talked about the Beat Nation and Kerouac and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the electric Kool Aid acid test. Yeah. That would have been good for the show. Yeah, it was very interesting. And then Dave said I was hurling insults at him and um, well, it's funny. his using or something. No, no, it was really funny. I said, because um, Chris doesn't know anything about, like, monumental drug figures. Like, he didn't know who uh, Neil Cassidy was or Ken Kesey was. And so, uh, and I said, I said, why don't you, why aren't you, why don't you know about that? He said, because I use like the people in the streets use. You ask somebody in the street I did not who, sound like who that. Neil Cassidy is, he'll say, I don't know, but Flacco's got that fire shit and I can steal batteries at writing. <laughs> it's true though. I, I stand by that statement. <clears throat> I, I, I don't disagree. Yeah. I really don't. But it's still funny. It's yeah, really funny. What I was but what you said was way funnier. You said, uh. You were like, all they know is how to get that fire from Flacco and which Rite they could steal batteries from. Yeah, which is true. But what I was getting at Dopey Nation was that Dave is kind of like a maintenance user where he's made it several, several years or decades using. And so those type of people, along, along with that type of use, they generally have like interests and passions and they have some sort of life, which you always sort of did to some degree, right? Sort of. Yeah. Sort of. The thing was, like, I got interested in drug culture uh, when I got interested in weed. You know, weed, uh, like, coupled with music and movies, uh, and then, like, it all, and acid, Mm -hmm. like, all that stuff kind of happened in a, a very flowing stream. So I would, like, smoke weed, and I would listen to 60s rock and roll and then I would read a book about it, and then that would refer to me to a movie, and then I would read stories. Like, um, there was this classic book. It was a, a book about John Lennon. But um, in the book, they talk about Eric Clapton's heroin habit, and the way he got addicted to heroin, at least the way, the way they talked about it in the book, I th- always thought was really cool. What it was was he was a coke fiend, right? And he would buy coke from this guy. And every time he would buy coke from the guy... 
the guy would throw in a little bit of heroin with the coke. But Eric, <laughs> it's funny. It's always the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> you never hear that. I, I, you always hear like yeah. someone buys dope and they throw a little coke in as like a like a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. But back then it was like to come down off the coke. Yeah. Like a tiny little bit or whatever for yeah. the end. So Eric landing gear, basically. Yeah. So Eric would throw all the dope in a drawer, and then oh, all of a sudden he had a shitload of dope. And okay. one day, yeah. um, fucking Alex. Yeah. Um, one day I'm like, is it him? Yeah. And it's fucking Alex. Yeah. And then one day, um, he like got depressed about something. He's like, didn't I have a bunch of heroin in the drawer? And then yeah. bing, he's total heroin addict. It's almost like scraping your bowl after you haven't scraped it for a long time or something. It's nothing like that. <laughs> it reminds me of, well, I don't smoke weed, so. It's nothing like that. He had a drawer full of heroin. <laughs> he had never done heroin. And then one day he's like, oh, that feels good. Uh, okay, but, so we either need to figure out what we're going to talk about, or why don't you just call this person and see if he answers. All right, I'm calling him. All right. Should we say who it is? Yeah. So I was working today, and... Yeah, just say it when you see if he answers, and then tell the whole thing on the right. yeah. Looks like it's not going to happen, Dopey Nation. <laughs> Where does he get that laugh? This is Bob. Leave a message. I'll call you back. Right. Or text. You leave a message? At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished <laughs> recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Hey, Bob. It's Dave. Uh, oh, he's calling back. Hello? Sorry, I was getting going here. What's going on? What's going on? How are you doing? I'm good. I can talk. Cool. Well, we're on the show. Welcome to oh. Dopey. Oh, great. <laughs> that was easy. Very easy. So, just Dopey, we, our fans are called the Dopey Nation, just so you know. And, and Chris, I love it. And Chris is my partner. He's right here. Hey, Bob. What's going on, man? That's good. How are, you, how are you guys doing? We're good. We're just chilling. How was uh, your sandwich? It was too big. I mean, come on now. <laughs> That's just how it is over there. It's crazy, and then you feel bad. We bought two for three people. We still got one and a half left. <laughs> oh, I take down one on my own, at least. Do you really? I but do. he's a tourist. He, he can't be trusted with this stuff. <laughs> he's also an addict. He comes in and he goes ballistic. Yeah, yeah I get it. I, I almost didn't go. There was a line out front. You know, I was talking with a bunch of my New York friends today, you know, I've been coming here since the late 70s, and, and you know, Lower East Side's always been my home. It's where I feel most comfortable, where I know everything is. And it used to have a million spots like Delhi everywhere, every block you went to. And now it's become like nostalgia that still exists. You know what I mean? It's like a tourist spot. Like, this is what New York used to be like. <laughs> Dude, you know, you know what I just realized is we didn't even introduce you, Bob. They don't even know who you okay. are. Okay. So this is for the Dopey Nation. This is Bob Forrest. Um, he's you do the introduction. You, you, I was working today, yeah. 
And don't mention cats again, Bob, or Chris is going to have to keep bleeping it because the show is anonymous, and I don't want anyone to come down and find me and shoot me in the oh, face. Okay. Or anything. okay. So, um, sorry. It's no problem. <laughs> um, and we were, I was working, and I see Bob Forrest getting French fries, and I'm like, is that Bob Forrest? And, and I walked up to you. You didn't see me, and I'm eyeing you. I'm, like, looking at your glasses and your hat, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no one else would have a hat and glasses like that. But then I was like, hey, maybe it's not him, and I left you alone. And then I went to the back, and I said, are you Bob Forrest? And he said, yeah. And I was like, uh, but, I don't know what it means to be Bob Forrest, but it's me. <laughs> you know, the funniest thing, though, is that Chris has been trying to get a hold of you for Dopey for about 10 months. So, oh my god! Well, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. I'm like the most technically Neanderthalic. I can only do Facebook. I don't even know how to instant message. I purposely want to live like that. I don't want. I don't think any of these that the technology has given us the last thirty years have made our lives any better. Not in any way. You know what I mean? But it could have been better if you had seen the dopey message and and called in sooner. (laughs) It's much more organic to bump into somebody on the street. That's the kind of world I like. Oh, yeah, and it happened. Where you have to have your eyes up and looking at people and saying hello and talking and teaching your children about life instead of technology teaching them about, you know, some, some sort of weird you know, alternative life. Yeah, screen so, culture is not like real life at all, that's for sure. Well, I remember, I, you know, I'm kind of an old punk rocker, and I remember when the cell phones came in, the first things I had was a talk about, you know what that is? Have you ever heard of that? No. You could send, like, short text messages amongst people who had this thing called a talk about. It was like in... I don't know, 97, 96, 97. And Dr. Drew had one, who I worked with, and Anthony from the Chili Peppers had one. So I could talk to two of my friends, like, anytime I wanted. It was it was amazing, and it was also an obligation, because now you got to keep track of it if they are trying to reach out to me. I got it. And now we, li- we all live in obligation to each other of hurting each other's feelings if you're actually living life and not paying attention to your phone. <laughs> that's true. That's totally true. It's funny. It's That's totally funny because it's like a hotline, but then once you take it for granted, it's like, wait, why didn't Bob text me back? Why didn't, you know, where's Anthony? <laughs> mad at me? Yeah. It's, well, here's the thing that happened last night. So I got two small kids, six and one, and we were at the Chili Peppers in Madison Square Garden, and Josh is, was in a band called The Bicycle Thief with me years ago, and he's like a son to me, and so he knew I was there. So their encore last night, they did a Thelonious Monster song, but I had already left. <laughs> so then Anthony texted me this morning, and he said, wasn't that beautiful, what Josh singing anymore last night? And I was like, oh my God. That's so funny. <laughs> you just say yes. Just say yes. <laughs> Bob, that's what the emojis are for. Put a little emoji. Oh, oh. So then I texted Josh like, I'm so sorry. And so I went on YouTube and watched it. <laughs> See, but there, the technology brought you back, though. You got lost, and then it brought you back. It seemed like I was there in real life with my friends playing my song. What a magical thing that is. But instead, I watched it on my phone. About two hours ago. How was it? Was it good? It was beautiful. It really was. That song, Anymore, you know that song? I, I have to say I don't, but I it's feel on, stupid for that. It's on the second record. It's like a, you know, it's like a ballad about, you know, 
kids and life and whatever. Well, we'll put it on Paul Westerberg. Paul Westerberg's my favorite songwriter of all time. And one time I asked him, like, how come you don't have any happy songs? Because people were starting to criticize me that I didn't have any happy songs. And he was my hero and mentor. So I thought I'd ask him. And he goes, who wants to write fucking songs when they're, de- when they're happy? Like, mm-hmm. you want to write songs when you're depressed? That's true. How do you you like Josh and the Chili Peppers? You think it's it's the right yeah, fit? Yeah, he fits in now. It took a while. I mean, the 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 whole there's a whole Chili Pepper Nation world that is kind of John Fashante obsessed. But I think that that now that people see the beauty in Josh and Josh is one of the most beautiful people, and I think that translates into. I don't mean to get high and mighty about it, but there was a tenseness to them. You know that that the, all through the late '90s and into the new millennium, there was a just a tenseness like about them, and now it's just relaxed and it's family oriented, it's love and it's mellow, and there's nobody yelling and stuff like that. And I think that's this is the most stable they've been. Josh's been in the band for like eight or ten years now, I think. And Anthony's and, clean now, though, right? I mean, I'm sure that yeah, helps. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that helps just, with the relaxation. <laughs> well, you know. I'm watching Doc and Daryl on TV talk about it. You know, you think rock and roll has got the corner on on relapse and drugs and everything? Watch Doc and Daryl, the documentary Judd Apatow made. It's like so so depressing about what addiction is. It's you know, you guys lived through it, right? The yeah. Doc and Daryl years. Well, we try I mean, to laugh at it. That's kind of our mo is that we look at it and we just. <laughs> Make jokes you and stuff like that. You laugh because the Mets should have won five World Series in a row, and they didn't because of drugs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but fucking, um, I, I mean, I find it hysterical that Chris was one of your patients at a 30-day treatment that he stayed in for eight months. Yeah. So, I yeah, mean, that's... That's Dr. Drew's motto. <laughs> it's not my motto. <laughs> Bob, I'll, I, you pro- I don't know if you remember me, but I'll, I'll try to refresh your memory, and we'll see if, uh, we'll see if you can PRC, put it together. right? You were at PRC. No, no. So I, was at, so I was at Impact multiple times, and then I was the second time I was there, I was just not feeling it, and I, um, I, I ran away from Impact. I ended up like on the street for a bit, and... Um, was basically like stealing like beef jerky in forties to like to subside, and um, I ended up going to Las Encinas, right? And when I checked into Las Encinas, uh, I told them I had this monster habit. I sat on my hands, I like pretended to be shaking, and like I didn't even have a habit at all. And they immediately like loaded me up full of detox meds, where I was on like thirty-two milligrams of Suboxone. Uh, they gave me a huge loading dose of Librium and like a PRN that I could take every 30 minutes. So I started, that, was up, but that wasn't in our unit. That was up in the psych ward. No, I'm getting there. I'm getting to your unit. <laughs> no, no. So I'm getting, that was a psych ward. So I'm getting to your unit. So, um, I had this huge loading dose of Librium and they let me take a PRN every 30 minutes. Well, I kept on going back every 30 minutes and asking for it. And like the nurse didn't realize that there's like a, a medical limit to how much you can have. There's like a cutoff for the day. And so I ended up taking like double, it was like 800 milligrams or something, double what you're supposed to take for the day. And I actually blacked out for like a week. So I was all, I was in like two East, Pack, Mariah, they kept transferring me around. And I finally ended up wherever you were with Pinsky and Blum, was it Gables yeah, or Briar yeah. or something? Yeah, that's our unit. Yes. Yeah, so I ended up there 
And um, I didn't. I actually came out of the blackout when I was there, and and I don't remember much. I remember trying to ask. What year was it? What year? This was like probably two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Um, okay, yeah. And I saw Farina. I saw that guy like five days. I I literally went through. I was at um, I was at Las Encinas for like eight months, and I was in every single ward. I kept relapsing, and they'd send yeah, me. Yeah, so to- let me shorthand for our audience. So you were drug-seeking in a psych hospital, and you just went from unit to unit that would have you for months, acting like a like a maniac, right? Because the only way you get put in the locked unit, you have to do something. Exactly. To get I used put to, in the locked unit. Well, what my, did you do to get put in the locked unit? The trick was um, they actually. <laughs> the trick was <laughs> the trick was if you took I took the top of the toilet bowl off and I started hitting the window and then. They, <laughs> and then <laughs> And then they come in and they give you the the Haldol and the Ativan, and the Haldol isn't great, but the Ativan feels good for about a minute. The the adolescents in the adolescent lockdown unit there, they the kids call it booty juice. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Because they strap them down and shoot them up in the butt with it. Yeah, Bob, Chris would do it just for the shot. He didn't want the drugs; he just wanted the needle in his butt. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way we go. Yeah. Um, I was in a I was in a lockdown psych ward for and you know how they usually they can hold you for three days but then if you're still crazy they can or you're still you know whatever you want to call it um, they can hold you over for ten more days I got held over for ten more days and I was trying to get out so how crazy was I Oh my god I'm trying to con them and they're like Nah I think you should stay another week or ten days Did you stay? Yeah, you can't leave. You're in lockdown. <laughs> a locked unit. Yeah, so what happened yeah. after that? They, then they put me to the open unit, the drug ward unit, like when Chris ended up with us. Because eventually a psych, a psych hospital will realize maybe this guy should just go to the drug unit. <laughs> Which is what happened finally. They were like, finally, like, I think um, he, they, they had me on injections of Zyprexa every day. And my, they came and they were like, Chris's aggression is under control to my parents. And my parents were like, Chris has never been aggressive in his whole life. Like, what are you talking about? And then they had like a meeting. They were like, let's try taking him off some of the meds. And as they brought me off of it, it was like they started to realize, like, I didn't need anything. You know, it was just a run of the mill alcoholic who was drug seeking. Yeah. In a 21st century world. Right. Yeah. That's what that's what I, you know, we got so many problems with addictions. We don't even know where to begin. One thing is the incarceration. The you know in California we incarcerate, you know almost everybody from certain you know ethnic backgrounds and economic backgrounds. So we have you know hundreds of thousands of people in prison and jail, right? Mm-hmm. Most of them are addicts. That that the and this is the racist thing and the classist thing that goes on in this country. Most of them are addicts. That if a white addict did, they wouldn't end up in prison for. Yeah, we've really got to look at addiction in America as, you know, polyclass, polyethnic, and and we need to have a, a a policy that addresses it as a disease, not just a disease for middle class white people, and then it's a it's a crime for ethnic background people of of lesser means that's what's going on in america it's my main fight i'm sick of it i'm sick of people receiving five years in prison that that 
if they came from a different background, they would be seen as a disease and get to go to impact or cry help or, you know what I'm saying? Totally. Bob, I mean, so I, I, um, I went to Sierra Tucson then I went to a place in Orange County and, uh, I left there and I robbed a veterinarian in a, in a blackout and I woke up in jail and I hurt one of the police officers and he had tried to retire from the force because of the injury is a great bodily injury. And I ended up getting like a year and a half. And if it was anybody else, they would have gotten, you know, a dime. Years. They would have, they would have got 20 years. And my parents just threw a bunch of money on it, hired some fancy attorneys that could go basically walk into the judge's chamber. And I was given a sweet deal and I was a spoiled little brat. I wasn't grateful. And I continued to get high afterwards. But the reality was because of like my family's status and the color of my skin, I was handed a totally different deal. Yeah, we got we to gotta get rid of this. So what's the solution, like Bob? What's the plan? Well, you know, you're not going to like it because uh, I've evolved my ideas because I deal with so many levels of addiction in America now. Um, one is that so harm reduction, which I was very much against for decades, I was just superimposing my experience with harm reduction. Right, your twelve-step you know philosophy. Mean? Yeah. So, so it was rather a mature, evolved person would say it just wasn't for me. I don't know who it's for. So I want some parameters on who it's for. And if you go back to the original Suboxone marketing of how they were bringing that drug to market, it was for hopeless drug addicts, lifetime criminals. You know what I mean? People that had multiple kind of treatments for drug and alcohol abuse and, and, and addiction that it had not worked. It's the final and the, stop. And the, 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 the demographic was going to be somewhere between 40 and 60 lifetime addicts and history of criminality, unemployment, and, and, and not having a place to live, right? That's who it was for. Well, I believe that's who it's for. Not 19-year-old kids in Boca Raton, Florida, so that they can make a bunch of money off of them mm-hmm. in treatment. Another thing that needs to be talked about is if you're on Suboxone, you don't need treatment. You've chosen a modality of treatment. It's called harm reduction. If you're on Suboxone, you don't need to be sitting in groups. That's one thing that we can cut off as a, as, as a clinical world or as a, just an, a sober population. Listen, if you're taking opiates, you don't need to be in rehab. I guarantee you there'll be less uh, Suboxone pushed on young people who don't need it. If you said, you know, you don't need treatment if you're on harm reduction. You don't go to treatment when you're on methadone. Right. It's like a hard fact. It's a hard fact. It's a fact. And the con right now in for-profit rehabs in Florida and California and Arizona is you can be on Suboxone and you need treatment that's very costly to the insurance industry. So I think I, I try to zero in on what can be done by government or what can be done by, by kind of people coming together with a public policy. And the public policy should be if you're on harm reduction, you do not qualify for your insurance to pay for drug treatment. That's an interesting yeah. idea. I've never heard that before. No, yeah. and, it, it, and it, I guarantee you it will stop the Suboxone being prescribed to 19-year-old children. I guarantee you, because the rehab centers are the ones prescribing it. Now, Bob, what has been the reception when you've told people about this in the treatment industry? They always think you can't get anything done. There's a hopelessness in America that I don't understand. Hmm. I, I don't understand it. I come from a society that changed the world. 
150, 200 people in New York and 150, 200 people in, in London changed the world of music. That's for 300 sure. people, yeah. right? Punk rock, the Sex Pistols, television, the Ramones, Talking Heads, the Ramones. They changed the world. There would be no Red Hot Chili Peppers. There would need be no pop culture. There would have been no Nirvana. All the things that have evolved our culture forward would not have happened if 300 people in London and New York said, you know what, there's nothing you can do. It's just hopeless. <laughs> yeah. So but how do you that. take a punk rock ethos to this problem? you got to go to the insurance industry, which none of the, you know, I'm a treatment professional. None of the treatment professionals want to rock the boat. They just want to figure out what the next codes are to the insurance. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm one that's trying to go to the insurance industry and go, hey, you know, I know you're going broke with this, and I know this can't last forever, and you, you can just keep changing the codes so many quarters or so many years in a row. There's a lot of bad operators in the recovery industry, all I'll help you, kind of tip you as to how to know. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's drug labs, and it's all this nonsense. It's just nonsense what yeah. goes on in my industry. Let me you ask you a question. That. Let me ask you a question, Bob. And this is, um, I want to say that I, this guy is very outlandish, but he's a personal friend of mine. Uh, what do you think of Joe Shrink's pot? Rehab? I love Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I talk to him all the time. Yeah, he's getting a lot of shit for this high society, high sobriety. High, high sobriety. <laughs> he was uh, he was on a couple episodes ago, uh, Bob. I love him. Yeah, yeah he's, he's the I, best. I, he, 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 he just says what's on his mind and like it is. And, and a lot of people say a lot of shit about him, but the truth is he'll take his shirt off and throw it over a puddle for an addict any day of the week, and there's a lot of people that won't do that. In yeah, I know. And, yeah. He, and he gets accused. I mean, we all have a history where, you know, I make my living off of, of Recovery. I understand that. You can have a problem with that, and I totally understand that. Yeah. It doesn't mean that what I do doesn't have value. Is there right? anything? And so, so, so the thing why Joe gets criticized is no one forgets his fancy sober living he had that was $10,000 a month out in Brooklyn. That's that, like, that Bob, that's where I used to. Across the nation. Bob, Chris, Chris used to manage that halfway house okay, while he was on Chris. ecstasy. <laughs> 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 well, <laughs> you got to pay for the ecstasy. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? That that was shocking to the industry. That 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 as soon as and you, Chris, then you were there when the when I remember Dr. Drew said to me, "Are we the hotel industry or are we the addiction recovery industry?" Yeah. And I'm guilty of that. I have a Malibu rehab. Yeah. I'm guilty of it. You got to have the. I didn't even know when me and Dr. Drew had lost the Zenith, they started calling, like, probably around the time you were there, because 2007, 2008, 2009, asking what the sheet count was on our beds or our sheets. What, I go, I don't know. It's this hospital sheets. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> what the thread count on the sheets yeah, was. Yeah, the thread count. That's, that's what rehab centers are advertising. They have 800 or whatever. The, I still don't know what thread counts are. I heard silver pills or silver hills has at least uh, 2,000 thread count yeah. on their sheets. <laughs> I heard their sheets are really soft. Gourmet food and all this kind of crap. It became the hotel industry. Yeah. And the first time somebody wanted to take a tour uh, tour of Lawson's, of our rehab, right? Because we were trying to compete. Malibu was putting us out of business. And I said, I said, what what would you be coming by to look at? I don't really understand what a tour of a rehab even is. Yeah, you know what I mean. The client's mother wanted to come with the client, which is female, to take a tour of the rehab. Totally. Like, <laughs> 
Chris, tell that story about when you used to write the letters to the rehab about what they'd let you bring, and if you could bring, like, your chimp or something. What was that? No, Bob, I actually wrote an article with Joe Schrank where we we basically, what I did is I emailed different rehabs in Malibu, and I made outrageous requests to see if they would agree to it. And I would imply I was, a, I would say I was a personal assistant for a high net worth um, individual, and I'd either imply that they were in finance or they worked in the movie industry, and then I would ask them, like, is it okay if this person receives therapy in the nude? Or... <laughs> Or I said, or one of them, I was like, um, my client is selectively mute and she will only speak in front of camera. Can she have nonverbal therapy? And like, every single place was like, sure, like, no problem. Just like, give us the money. Most them, yeah, most of them went along with it, yeah. I'm sure. So is Which there- was a cheap shot. I give it, I was basically trolling the rehabs because we knew what they were going to say, but it was still funny, you know? Yeah, and that, and, you know, what's. So once it became like the hotel industry, you either had to get on this concierge service thing, which kind of, and that gets back to, huh? Your ears do not look red, Elvis. He's got his headphones headphones on watching YouTube. Minecraft. My son is oh, here. Hypnotized by technology. You should show him a Ramones video. Well, it's the only time I can do a podcast is if he's doing YouTube. Thank God for technology on technology, right? Uh. Anyways... So when it became like the, you know, like all this hospitality and all this marketing type stuff, you either had to do that or you had to get out. And a lot of my friends got out. And right at that time is when the your guy's sober living, Chris, you know, that was just like, hey, like what, what treatment's going on there? You know what I mean? So I was hoping that your clients were going to Hazelden had an outpatient in New York, right? At the time, were people going to outpatient? Yeah, at the time it was uh, Hazelden and CMC, and then they eventually opened up their own outpatient, um, which was called Rebound Brooklyn, that's now defunct. Um, But it was, they basically integrated. They were like, why are we sending people to Hazelden when we can have our own? And you know what I mean? So I'm just saying that this, the, animosity Joe's getting I, don't, I think is undeserved because marijuana is here to stay and we all have to figure out how it fits in to the you know the zeitgeist of addiction treatment and if if I, I look at it as a harm reduction yeah I have a client that's been to 36 treatment centers she's a hope to die drug addict does not give a shit about anything when she's rolling like Doc and Daryl yeah and she she asked me about five years ago like what do you think of pot and i said for you if you can smoke pot and not end up shooting speed balls and ruining your life right i think it's an option now this is like properly assessing a client you're talking about a client that's in her late 30s been to treatment since she was 18 you know what i mean but the problem so, one of the problems then, is is but, that but watch this chris it's worked fabulously she's a great mom she's a great woman i love her she's amazing Totally. But if it, it you gets... stick to the old ideas of Betty Ford Center, Minnesota model, uh, she's dead, in my yeah. opinion. She well, would have been dead. Two, two things. First of all, those old principles, they did save my life. But in, I do think there's people that need to have maybe a different pathway to recovery. And I'm not, I'm not a, just a 12-step guy. Like I believe there's many pathways to get there. And one of them is harm reduction. And it doesn't have to be this adversarial thing where one side's white, right and one side's wrong. But I think what it comes down to with something like Joe's new place is 
it's coming back to that 19 year old kid who's supposed to be on Suboxone is like, can you be selective about the people that you're going to take into your rehab? <clears throat> it isn't just take everybody, I don't think, you know, and the problem with the yeah. industry is there's a bottom line and you have to make payments. <laughs> But let's but let's also look at the industry. Do you guys like talking about the industry? Because I love talking about it. I do. I mean, we usually tell jokes. We usually tell we usually tell jokes and stuff. And I do have one story that you told me that I want you to repeat. But we can get to that in a minute. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, a lot of it's funny to me that that you know because of Obamacare and because of the industry, the high end industry realizing they can make as much money. And it's easier off of insurance. They didn't do it altruistically, the Malibu rehabs taking insurance. They did it because it's hard to get 50 grand cash out of somebody's bank account. you right. got to talk to them and talk to them and convince them <clears throat> how essential this is for the life of their child. They're going to die unless you pay us 50 grand. And that's exhausting. And and 50% of the time, you can't close the deal. But with insurance, paying 35000 a month, all you got to do is get the person to say they want to come. And so Malibu switched to even worse than it was before, I believe, because now you have kids from all over the United States who don't have a pot to piss in. They get flown out, you know what I mean, just for their insurance card. And the Malibu rehabs are making as much money as they were before, right, yeah. off of a population that should be getting sober in Ohio, in Illinois, in Texas. They should be getting sober in their communities. But instead, the, the gold, gold insurance card gives them a free ticket to Malibu. And guess what happens when they get to Malibu? They don't want to leave. Yeah. Nobody, nobody <laughs> wants to go back to Ohio when they've lived in Malibu for right. three months. And it's not it's easy because- to integrate into your normal life when you're in this fancy pants beach town <laughs> shit, you know? Yeah. It's very well, hard to go back. The best way I got explained, uh, a friend of mine who works in the Malibu industry said... You know, sometimes it gets so depressing because it's just like we're paid caring. That's what we really are. Yeah. We're just like paid caring. Yeah. This is not, you know, this is not medical. This is not scientific. This is not clinical. This is just paid caring. But isn't you know? that isn't that just a piece of the puzzle though? That that patients need the caring, like that they're yeah, actually the missing is it. Much better at a sustainable level. That, that's what I try to do. I got a sober living in Hollywood. I'm the worst businessman in the world. I got two guys paying, one kid paying half, and two guys staying for free. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I barely... Sliding I, scale. I got a, I got a $1,028 electric bill. I'm like, how the fuck am I going to pay this? Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But we're not talking about, like, that grassroots where they can get a job and they can move out of my house into an apartment in East Hollywood, and they can build a life that's that's not what malibu or florida or any of the go away rehabs are doing you can't even do that at betty ford you go out there for 90 days then what totally then what your insurance is blown you have no more money you didn't have money to begin with so you're homeless again so then it forces this population to like hey wait a minute if i go on a good run which i've been wanting to do for three months i can just start over yeah right Totally. And that's what's happening. And that's why, you know, our, our industry is in a shambles. And, and I'd like to see some real mature industry owner operators stand up and say, we got it. We got to start showing some sort of, uh, you know, success or a quantifiable evidence based that this is has value. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, I think, I mean, my, the thing I always circle back to is if you talk to different marketing reps and you, 
from different treatment centers is everybody complained, uh, com- claims they have like this unique algorithm for getting people to clean and why their facility is the best. And it really, in my opinion, it boils down to the clinicians and they don't even have to be clinicians, the people that work there. And it's yeah, like, the people that work there. If, and, and, and the right. people that work, there's a huge turnover. So a place that's good, right? It, it, they always talk about what's your theoretical orientation and whatnot. I'm like, I don't fucking yeah, you care. Can't come from school, you, get, you can't come from school. I mean, I I've tried to train hundreds of people that aren't addicts and come from an academic background, wanting to help. It's very rare that one of those people becomes a good addiction clinician. Totally. But if yours and and the and what we all know, if we're all we're all sober, sober people are lazy as fuck. Right. Mm. So me included. So so the sober community is not going and finishing their B.A. and going for their master's and becoming psychologists. They're not. Chris is going for his side D. I'm getting a doctor. I'm getting a doctor. There you go. (laughs) I'm getting a doctorate. It's like because what you're talking about, though, because I saw there's a huge disconnect between like these doctors there's a yeah and i'm like there's just a bunch of bozos and they're offering horrible advice and the people that were the most helpful for me in my life was someone like you in the trailer you know i wasn't ready at that point but it was like people that i could look in their eyes and be like this guy's got the same thing as me and maybe i should listen to what he's suggesting even though i had the same advice by other doctors in the past but i wouldn't follow through until i could connect with someone on a very personal level well that's the thing that I, I, you know, I'm good at that, and and I think it comes from from music myself. Like I've always just cared about people. Like I always, not to be a, you know, pat myself on the back, but I used to feel bad once the Lonely Monster got so popular that people couldn't get into where we were playing. So right. I started. <laughs> going outside like an hour before we play and I play on the street for people, right? They're, we're waiting to get in on will call or I mean like if if they were going to let more people in. Started playing outside and that became a thing in LA. And then a friend of mine told me, you know, people don't even buy tickets anymore. They just would rather see you play out in front. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm trying to be a good guy, and they're fucking me They're here. beating the system <laughs> again, Bob. <laughs> what? Said, they're, they're always beating the system, and you've got a heart of gold. And you can't let so, them take advantage of you, these punk rockers. disillusioning. So I've always just been good at just liking people and liking talking and liking you know that thing and so what you and I experienced because I just like talking to people and hearing what goes on in their lives and sharing stories and that's how my dad was my dad I come from a big family and they told stories all the time and and you laugh together and that that is the one of the crucial things about sobriety that doesn't exist in our society anymore really there's not a lot of a lot of people that are very good storytellers in our society, mm. right? That you can identify with or, you know, understand. I'll try, try to put me on the spot. Tell me the story you want to hear and I'll tell it to you. All right. Uh, all right. The story was, um, I'll just say one word, sundown. It's what? Sundown, the, the Belushi, the chick. Oh. Some chick, the chick who uh, fixed oh, Belushi. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you want to know when I, she was on, when I was dealing drugs to her? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. I can't even believe I told that story. Yeah. So I was a meth dealer. Not really. Like, I, I knew a good meth dealer, and I got good deals, and people wanted to get meth through me 
because I could get really strong meth and I had screenwriters and entertainment people that would come to my house, pick me up, I'd have them drive me over to the drug dealer's house and wait around the corner and then I'd get the money from them, I'd go inside, every drug addict knows this deal, I'd get like $100 from them, I'd go inside and buy $40 worth of really good weighty meth, bring it out to them, give them the meth i'd make 60 bucks and then ask them to kick me down some meth <laughs> sure that's the deal and maybe get someone from the dealer's side too and so I've, I've, i did and this one screenwriter guy always got it from me and he came and the girl was driving the car and i and i got in the back seat and you know we go do the thing and then there i'm not paying attention to who it is i'm kind of pissed that he's brought somebody i don't know with him and we're driving back i want them to drop me off they're going back to the west side of hollywood and i want them to drop me off so i'm riding in the back seat and we get to hollywood and sunset in the left turn lane i'll never forget it and they did little lines on the little thing in between the front seats right it was one of those things you could put coke down on or you know a line down on and she snorted it the driver and then she like you know she knew how good it was and whatever and she turned to me and looked right at me and goes have you got a point i would love to run some of this stuff and i looked at her and it was you know kathy evelyn smith or whatever that <laughs> was on trial for the john belushi and i'm like oh my god because this woman was on the news every night she was on trial for killing john belushi that's fucking... on the news every night <laughs> she... and i had just bought her drugs and i'm sure she's being followed <laughs> but holy shit and then the person i had bought the mess from who was a really good meth dealer was a very famous rock musician who you know i'll never say his name but he was very successful rock musician he was an addict and he was trying to cover his cost or whatever so was it paul mccartney no 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 but i'm looking (laughs) behind us thinking cops are going to pull us over at any minute and you're on meth too so you're kind of like paranoid and i'm looking around and then it hits me like the calm of the meth storm yeah i'm like how bad is this for my music career to get arrested in a conspiracy? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so and you should have so started weaving in and out of traffic and stuff. That'd be good for album sales. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, true. That's funny. And then we never got pulled over, and, and she kept buying from me, That's and funny. I was so nervous. But well, why was she even being tried for Belushi's death? She she, she got fixed, him the drugs. She fixed, she fixed well, him. I think. I think. I think we'll never know, just like the Kennedy assassination and the Trump-Clinton election, we're never going to know the truth. Right. But, the, but there was a lot of people at John Belushi's bungalow, and some of them were very rich and powerful. You know what I mean? I so, do. So the, the question, just the whole time frame, I knew Belushi, I knew a little bit of him, I was on the peripheral of him. He never was alone. Never. I think he was a very insecure person who always had to have people around him, whether the, those people were, you know, drug druggies and, and, you know, street-level people or celebrities or old friends. So I never saw him alone because he'd go to this after-hours club that I always went to, and he always had, like, six or eight people with him or four people, and, and I just can't imagine he was alone in that bungalow. I just can't imagine it. So if you go back historically and see who was around in that world one of them just passed away last year year before last um and it so she was just the you know like 
Conrad Murray. She was just the lowest rung on the ladder right. standing, right? The final provider or whatever. Yeah, the final provider. Well, I was, I was in that spot five years later or ten years later, and I knew who was involved um, at, at the end of this actor's life. Uh, oh, my God, like I'm the person that has no power. I'm the one that's going to be in a tight spot here because everyone else is just going to fly the coop and hit the road and, and not make any statements, and I don't even have a place to live. I'm just wandering around Hollywood. So, you know, I know that spot very well, and she was in that spot. Hmm. And did, did, whatever happened to her? I think she got convicted, right? But not of very many years. She got like two uh, years, I think, or something. Yeah, she got like two years. They didn't, yeah. the murder conviction, I mean, it's never going to hold up. Like, you know, what? whoops. So, you know, that's another part of the criminality of drugs, right? In my opinion, if, if, if I were to have perished from drugs, it was nobody's fault but mine. Of course. Right? Yeah. And I had some pretty horrendous situations in that area but I always in my heart of hearts like this is all on me now we it's kind of evolved into a society where it's got to be on somebody else too we live in a very codependent weird blamey society it's weird well what's this new there's this there's this there's billboards on Long Island that say now you can call if you're overdosing with somebody and we won't arrest you like LA started that in the late 90s yeah, I mean that's yeah. like trying to, you know, give some freedom to you know to help people in a situation where your friend is overdosing and you don't call the hospital because you're scared you're going to get busted. Yeah, yeah, and that you know, just the world used to be much more straight up and and transparent and honest, right? We used to have this drug dealer, me and Flea and Anthony and Pete, the drummer of Thelonious, and he used to say. You know, we we would want to fix at his house, and he'd go, "Okay, but if you go out, I'm not resuscitating you. I'm put you in a shopping cart. I'm gonna push you up on Hollywood Boulevard, right?" And he would say that all the time. Okay, you can get high here. It was a rehearsal studio called Fortress, right? And he'd say, "You can get high here, but if you go out, I'm not resuscitating you. I'm putting you in a shopping cart, and I'm pushing you up on Hollywood Boulevard." And then one day, I'm watching the news, and, and this girl that I knew was found in a shopping cart. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Like, Holy moly! He is not joking, dude. <laughs> He's a man of his word. That's yeah, funny. Man Holy of his shit. word. So why do we laugh this gallows humor at all this stuff? Because you gotta laugh. We gotta laugh at Trump. We gotta laugh about the whole thing. We just gotta love and laugh and carry on. Yeah. You know well, we, what I mean? We find that people like uh, we do this because we always laugh. We would tell these stories to each other and we would die laughing. And if you're ever in treatment or if you're ever like waiting online at the methadone clinic, you can have a, a laugh. But it's like it's almost shameful in society to society that we can laugh about it. So we started doing it because we knew that people would feel included that don't get to laugh at their own fucking worst moments or just yeah. have to feel so ashamed. And we feel like it's taking a little bit of that away from them. Whether you know? they're sober or not. Yeah. yeah, I know. We just got to laugh more as a society. I think Saturday Night Live's doing a great service to the society right now. I think people can't wait to laugh, right? Yeah. They wait all week. And, and tonight's a rerun. I was just so bummed. I was like, what? A rerun at a time like this? Yeah. You know I mean? You'd think they could get crazy mileage this week. 
with this yeah. press conference. Yeah, I bet you Lauren Michaels is rolling over in his grave, but he's not dead yet. But, not yet. But that they're not on the air this Saturday because everybody was waiting for what they do tonight. But but let me tell you, funniest thing. So you were at Las Vegas, Chris. You know, remember the adolescent locked unit that was neck in the far back. Yes, I used to I used to do groups in there at two o'clock because I loved the kids and I wanted to go in there, and and so this is like one of my most embarrassing moments of my existence, and only Anthony Kiedis knows it, right? I'm sure. Well, he told about a handful of our friends, right? And you know those things that you did when you were high that you're just like, no one can know about this. <laughs> yeah, I have one. I have so, one story that I will never tell anyone. So I was in the locked unit doing a group with you know teenagers and one of them goes bob what's your last name and i said forest straight on my name tag and they go are you friends of the red hot chili peppers and i said yeah those guys i grew up with yeah and he goes you had sex with a transvestite in cleveland nikita's <laughs> <laughs> book <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, like this is a book he had called Scar Tissue. I never got, got it. It'd been out a couple months, and I was like, and I walked out. I was just pale and I was sweating, and I didn't want Doctor Drew to find out about it. That's the first thing. That I was like. That's funny. So I, I go walking outside, and I call Anthony. And I go, dude, you wrote about that thing in Cleveland, and he started laughing. On the oh my god! Go, this is not funny. I work in a hospital. Kids are reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? He just kept laughing. <laughs> How long did it get? Did it take for you to laugh at it? Because I would have been so upset for so long. I know. Well, you know, I couldn't get any traction or sympathy from anybody because because a lot of people didn't know about it and a lot of people didn't read the book. So I didn't. I didn't want to go to friends of ours that didn't know about it and hadn't you know i knew i weren't going to read the book because you don't really read books about your own life kind of right so so i couldn't go to friends i was scared to go to friends you know that he wrote about that thing in my book so i was just like silent about it until i started realizing i felt better about myself and i was like yeah i did that yeah yeah, it's part of my story. Yeah, fuck you. I did that. Story. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a tendency or anything. It was a one-time thing. It was a one-off thing. Well, Bob, what's going to happen when your kids read scar tissue, though? <laughs> I know. Oh my god, you have to bring that up. Oh my god, I never thought of that. You never thought of that, really? <laughs> Not until you just mentioned it. I'm looking at Elvis sitting in his couch. Oh my god. Should I tell him right now? Yeah, tell him now. <laughs> <laughs> six years old. We'll see so, how that one goes. You know what? He, you know, it's weird being a drug counselor because you don't want to explain too much. So he thinks that I just talk to people and help them, but he doesn't really generally know about drugs. Not yet. Mm. No, yeah. You I, mean, I mean, totally. My daughter doesn't know anything about it. And, uh, you know, I don't want her to know anything about it until, like, She's way older. Like, yeah, like, like what age do you think? Well, I think kids mature like 11, 10, 11, 12. It's going to come up. Whenever they don't, the do not, what is the thing in schools? The Nancy Reagan thing? Uh, just, just say you know. no. Just say no. Whenever that, what, what age does that start? Because I imagine somewhere in there I'm going to need to have a talk with They them. did it at her school in kindergarten. Oh, my God. They did some just say no thing in kindergarten. And, and like one of the friends, you know, like my 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 wife's friend, my fiance's yeah. friend, she's like, she's like, Dave, 
when are you going to tell Nora about your past? And I was like, when she's 25 or something. I don't, I don't plan on telling her soon. I don't think she, unless she's in trouble, she doesn't need to know how far I went. Yeah. You know, until she can understand it or put it in context. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's weird. My oldest son, he's 30. He lived through it. I mean, he when he was eight, he was visiting me in rehabs. He knew that I had a problem with drugs. I mean, it's hard to keep it from the kid that it's happening to. You know what I mean? So he's kind of always grown up knowing. But my two later kids, like, I don't know what I'm going to tell them. I don't know when I'm going to tell them. How, did your older kid ever fuck with drugs? Not really, not drugs. Drinking, though. So you get it one way or another. The new thing, too, for a lot of young people is drinking and weed. And they're and they're ruining their lives with it. Bob, I blame but, rap music. I blame rap huh? music completely. It's 40s and blunts, man. That's the problem. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just kidding, but I think that's part of the culture. But they're ruining their lives yeah. with it. I don't mean to be an old cantankerous, but just because you're... Stay away from heroin and coke doesn't mean that you need to that you can just anesthetize yourself all day long with weed and bo- and still, beer. Yeah, it's and drug it's addiction. Started, well, yeah, but but we're looking at it in a functionability way, right? So the only the only kids really in rehab at 16, 17, it's not like 20 years ago where kids, if they were caught with marijuana, would go away to a, you know, Idaho or, or Utah or something. It's now so early, the exposure to opiates, kids are heroin addicts at 14, 15, right? So there's not really a thought in our culture that you know, there's a lot of parents I know don't want to send their kid away even if they think they have a problem with pot because they don't want them to be exposed to the kids who do heroin. Totally, yeah. Right? Totally, yeah. Well, that's a real thing. You know, you learn that stuff from these places. If you, you go and you're not... Re- the first time I shot... Uh, the second time I shot heroin, Bob, was at this sober living called Allen House that was in Pasadena. <laughs> do you know Allen House? Do you remember that place? <laughs> Yeah, I do remember, but I mean, that's, that's like a... And it's know, no, no slight on the house, but I'm just saying that's, that's know. you know... <laughs> the second time I shot heroin was with a dude I left treatment with, and he was like, you're an idiot to snort heroin. Let me let me show you how to shoot it right. Dude, this was in the sober living... In this sober living, Bob, I, I learned that if somebody does too much heroin and they're non-responsive, the solution is to run some coke. Just shoot them up yeah. with some coke. And the fucked up thing is... We would do this, somebody would be basically overdosing on heroin, and we'd be drawing up a shot of Coke, and we'd be putting it in, and we'd be like, wait, don't give him too much, because we were stingy. Yeah, you don't want to waste You don't want to waste the Coke on your dead friend. It's like, you fuck know, that. You're getting back to that, the call 911, the, the L.A. started doing that in the early 90s, now that I recall, because I was still using, and it was in place, and I had this apartment, and this... This friend of a friend of mine, this musician, it was all musicians came to my house to score and whatever. And so this uh, guy from ministry came with his road manager and bought drugs. And then we were doing it. And the guy, Al and I were sitting there and the guy did his first and he went out. And Al just looked at me like, holy fuck. And so we put our syringes down and we're resuscitating him, right? And we called 911 and, and they, they came and got him and I was kind of blown away like, oh my God, you can just call the cops and they come and get him. How, how amazing is that? Because that wasn't happening in Texas where he lived, right? Mm. I was like, it's LA, baby. <laughs> so, so about two weeks later, this girl that was hanging out there 
uh, OD'd and I called 911 and she went out and the, it was the same cop who came the second time, right? And she's standing in the doorway of my apartment. I'm getting a little nervous and, and I go, and the girl had gone off and she was breathing and everything. Well, me and a couple friends were sitting in the living room and she was standing there too long and I said, I said, is there anything that you need? And she said, I don't know how to express it, but yacht not a party so hard around here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I looked at my friend and, we were, and he said and she, we both looked at her and we said this isn't a party this is serious business exactly yeah. exactly this is, this is not a party yeah. these are not party stories yeah. this is <laughs> oblivion seeking stories. exactly exactly that's that's something we always talk about too yeah um I love that. That's it is not a party. Yeah. What about what do you think about this? You know, you know this Vice TV channel. Yeah, I mean, I've watched it. I, I was really excited about it when it came on. I was really excited about watching it, and it just seemed they didn't have enough content, and they ran the same shows over and over again, and and they kind of lost me. But I I do like I did like the shows that I saw, but I just don't want to see them five times in one week. It reminded me of like, remember current TV that Al Gore had? Yeah, that channel too. But they same thing. They don't have enough content, so they just play the same shows over and over again. I'm trying to get Dopey on Vice. That's my big plan: is to get Dopey on Vice. That would be great because Vice is doing all these drug shows. They do some pharmacopoeia show. They do all these weed cooking shows. They like do some party show. And I feel like we could bring a hard edged drug addict show on the with a recovery bent but still being totally depraved and i think vice could really use that yeah an alternative they're supposedly the most open-minded people in the world mm-hmm. and you know what i've tried to do my whole sobriety it's like 20 years 21 years next month is like show that like listen you don't have to believe in nothing you don't have to be square you don't have to be uninformed you don't have to be stupid you don't have to shop at walmart all the things that people think being sober is i prove wrong right i, I <laughs> just i'll prove it wrong you can yeah. be sober and and be crazy or whatever i hate that term because they have a bumper sticker that says sober and crazy and those people are about as crazy as my mother they're like boring <laughs> as shit but but that you can live an unorthodox life you can live you can be political. Like I'm getting attacked a lot for my. I don't. I don't even really attack Trump. I just try to expose how crazy the whole thing is. Right? I get attacked by AA people on Facebook because we have no opinions on outside issues. I said, "Fuck you!" I got a million opinions about almost everything. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. then they said, "Well, you're an AA and you're an example of AA." I said, "Then count me out of AA." Then I quit AA. Wow. I'm out of AA. Well, right. Bob, we've, we've already because, had to take down episodes of Dopey say, because of that. But you can say, I'm out of AA. It doesn't mean you are. It's just fucking words. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. <laughs> Nobody's yeah. keeping track of me being in or out of AA. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's so funny because it's something that can save all of our lives, and it's a place we can go and be safe, and then all of a sudden you can't say something. We won't talk about this. We, you know what I mean? And it's like the world is fucking... In a, in a state right now, like I was telling at Katz's, I was telling Bob the story. I had these six old women from Boston. They were all wearing pink hats and they were in something they called themselves the Pink Hat Society. They had the thickest Boston accent you could have ever heard. Let me hear it. And I, I can't do it. I can't. I, the way, they, a bottle. I want a bottle of, of seltzer. <laughs> uh, give me a wicked dark beer while you're there. Um, and, uh, and she's like, 
She's like, oh, we're going over to the Trump Tower. And I was like, I was like, cool, maybe you could bring an explosive device while you're visiting. <laughs> and she's like, what? And I was like, I was like, come on, lady. I mean, are you paying attention to what's going on? And she goes, he's the greatest. I, he's going to clean up this whole mess. And I said, I said, honestly, I can understand where you're coming from. Uh, when you're voting for him, that he says X, Y, and Z, but here we are 30 days in, and he's, like, eliminating the press. And she goes, that's good that he's eliminating the press. And I was uh, like, oh, my yeah. God, it's terrifying. So, well, you know, I, I, my whole complaint is I, somebody needs to be honest with the American public. If you're – the days of being having a high school diploma and getting a $30 an hour job are over. They're mm. not coming back. Yeah. Go down to Mexico and see a plant, or go online and look at a, what a plant looks like now. There's no people working it's in it. Robots. The people that work in it are engineers. The people in the Rust Belt aren't engineers. Yeah. This is something that started a long time ago. Some of us were ahead of the curve. Like when I knew my music career was over, I thought, I either need to kill myself or I need to retool. Right. Louis C.K. has this great bit about, don't you think most people should just kill themselves? <laughs> yeah. 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 I just saw him two days ago. I heard that. Yeah, <laughs> I love I know, that. I saw him like a yeah. week ago in yeah. L.A. You saw him in Boston. I saw him in Boston on uh, Thursday night. Yeah, he, he was, yeah. It was the it's his he was his second to last night of doing that specific material. The one you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. He's my favorite. He's like, great. He, the um, best. He he opens with abortion and then he moves into suicide. Yeah. <laughs> That's the greatest. He is the Lenny Bruce of our time. There's no doubt in my mind. Totally. The things that he says no other comedian could say, no other person could say, except for him. Yeah. He can say it. Yep. How about his Christianity to- wins? Yeah, you know, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What year is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, one of the great moments of my life, I played Joe's Pub last year, and I'm sitting there sound checking, and he walked in. And I was like, I had heard he might be coming, and I was like, oh my God, my probably one of the, my favorite people on the planet is coming to see me play. And, and I was just like, and I was so nervous. I, was, I didn't care about all the people that, that supported me all my career or liked me or my friends who were there. I was like, I got to be good because Louis C.K. is here. <laughs> How did it go? Huh? How did the show go? It went good. Oh. Except for at the end, my friend Dave from Soul Asylum was there. And we tried to do one of his songs that didn't go so well. But that's part of the charm of life and in my world mm. try to try to do something unrehearsed that's almost undoable and you try anyways because one out of ten times you're going to hit it and it's going to work and nine out of ten times you can joke your way out of it and it was amusing and fun this was not amusing or fun nor was it good <laughs> right but it's now it's still funny now yeah you know it's material yeah. now that's yeah. for sure um, and it's the, so funny. I've been a part of those things a lot. Sometimes they come off magical, and then sometimes they're just a train wreck, and you can laugh at what a train wreck they are. But when they're just bad and meandering and not good, you're in the middle of it. I don't know if you know if you guys sing at all. I do. Okay, so you know that you can think and sing at the same time. Yeah. Do you know that? Do you know why that is? Because left brain, right brain thing. Okay. Right. <laughs> so you're singing from your right brain your creative side of your mind and you're thinking with the left side of your brain right so the reason why i know this is two reasons one is i was going to do the national anthem at a basketball game and i 
was um, I didn't rehearse it. I just memorized it, saying it out loud, like reading the words. Oh, say, can you see it by the dawn's early light? I sat there all night. I know all night because I was smoking crack the whole time <laughs> for hours and hours the day before. And I memorized it. I could do it in my sleep, except for I hadn't sang it. So it wasn't in the right part of my brain, right? You have to, that's why you have oh, to sing melodic, to rehearse, yeah. right? It wasn't loaded. Yeah. So then I walked out there to sing it, and there was nothing there. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened? I did a very bad job of it. I sang <laughs> the same verse that I knew over and over again three times, and the audience was booing. And so that off. wasn't a horrible meandering version. That was just like the no, funny. No, that was just a not right brain but then also i used to owe a lot of drug dealers money and i could be singing at a concert and look in the audience and see the drug dealers and know how much i owed them and trying to figure out how much i'm getting paid and can i even just pay all of them off and then determining no i'm gonna have to pick one pay that one off and buy drugs from them because i don't have enough to pay them all off and the song would still be going and me singing it <laughs> or, or the song ends and you're still thinking and you forgot that the song even ended yeah it's a very strange yeah. thing huh. so the creative side of your mind in in this in the show at joe's pub in the middle of the song i'm singing it and i realize like how much longer till this is over <laughs> in the thinking part of my brain i'm like it's a long song. It's like a seven-minute song, and we've been doing this for like two minutes. There's still five minutes left of this song, and it's not going to go good, but hmm. we're going to continue. And your uh, right side of your brain is singing the song. <laughs> and the left side of your brain is like, this isn't good, and it's never going to end. <laughs> it's just, we're, we're like, we're minutes away from the end of this. I wonder if there's a way to, after the next verse just cut it short and act like that was the ending but then you can't signal to the other guy singing like hey let's not go any further let's end at the next verse <laughs> right and louis ck witnessed that and he walked out <laughs> really he walked out <laughs> well it was the last song and i thought i was gonna meet with him afterwards or talk to him or whatever and he was gone that is but, so funny. Yeah. And and you tried to do something special in it. Of course, it blew yeah. up in your face. And and song, it's one of my favorite songs by Soul Asylum called Passing Sad Daydream. You ever heard that song? It's no. on like their third album before they became so hugely famous. It's one of my favorite songs. And I, I know, you know most of the words, and Dave wrote it, so he should know most of the words. But I knew more of the words than he did. So it was right off the bat, it wasn't going good. Because <laughs> he, I sang, I said, I'll take the first verse. I sang the first verse. I looked at him, and he goes, sing second verse. And I was like, I don't know second verse. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> and, funny. And neither did he. <laughs> His own song. So you're just playing through. Yeah, no. we just did instrumental for a while, and then and then he stumbled in the verse that he knew, and then we came to the chorus, and by that time we're a little out of sync. But it was it was fun. It's funny you and know, horrible, and Louis C.K. is probably thinking, alive. he's like, why don't these guys just kill themselves? Get off, get off the fucking <laughs> stage. I, I'm hoping that's when he got his, his joke. Yeah. He was sitting there going, you know what, this was good up until now, but now I think, why don't these guys just kill themselves? Yeah. I, I, I say that to people all the time when they're like, you know, I, I'm, you know, they're like, I don't feel good. I'm like, maybe you should just kill yourself. <laughs> and I think it for myself too. I, I, I love that joke. I think it's so fucking funny. It really is a good. It's you know, and and when he says it, 
you really think the great thing about Louis C.K. <clears throat> and Chris Rock, let's face it, these, there's two kings of comedy, is that you're thinking what they're saying is true and it, not even funny. Well, it has this amazing plausibility so out of their mouths. Funny. Huh? It has amazing plausibility in their delivery. It's like the way they say it, you're like, wait a sec, maybe I should just kill myself. You know, but it. <laughs> But it's fucking. Chris's favorite joke of of mine is where where they realized, the white people realized how much money the brown and black people were making off of drugs and got together at a big conference and said, Do you know how much money these Mexicans and black people are making (laughs) off drugs? We need need that money back in the hands of the white people where it belongs. Here comes Oxycontin. Here comes Big Pharma. Right? Because they actually got together and said, there's a lot of money to be made in this. My goodness, no idea that it was billions. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. What was I the, love comedy. What was the thing you were, because um, when we were talking about you coming on the show, you were saying that you wanted to get the word out to, the, to our people about the insurance thing. Is there anything they can do well, about it? Well... Well, that, that's got to be coming because there's going to be a big change in the industry. But what I'm trying to do is at least be as honest as you can because most people, I mean, most people don't realize that, that with Google, if you search heroin or rehab or detox, you're sold to the highest bidder. Nobody seems to even understand that. So rehab centers in Florida and Texas, Betty Ford Center, Malibu, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to be at the top that doesn't mean that they're good right mm-hmm. but america doesn't seem to understand that we're we're finding our health care that is being bought and paid for by profiteers that's one thing that the public needs to know call centers are the other thing when you see american addiction centers or this center or that center on television that's not even a rehab that's just a call center that's going to plug pre-cert your insurance and then plug you into a rehab and sell you to the rehab. Yeah. Right? So, America, I don't think is smart enough anymore to know what's going on. I'm just being totally honest. So I'm, I'm being as honest as I can. You can try to educate America about things, but I've been trying to do it for seven years, and they don't seem to understand. They're still calling the call centers. They're still going to the Google search. So where can the people, like if somebody well, who's I'm listening. i at a call center that deals with all comers, whether you're homeless and don't have any insurance, whether you have in shitty insurance, it doesn't really get you to much treatment at all, and is connected to the, to the, to the social uh, services network across the United States, and does have people that have good insurance get steered to a rehab that I choose, Mm. Right, and that rehab compensates back the nonprofit that in, then enables me to pay for the indigent population to get treatment. Do you understand? I'm trying to go in totally. to the scumbag world where it is and outsmart them because you can't. Because <laughs> the old idea was educate the public about the scumbags, and then the scumbags will be out of out of out of out of the loop. They're not. You can't. People don't like the people at, at the at cat at the deli today. No, I think it's good to get rid of the press. Like, what the hell are you talking about, lady? Yeah. Yeah. And you shouldn't be able to vote. <laughs> you know what I yeah. mean? Right, I know. I mean, I went nuts, and, and they started screaming at me. And then, um, and, and they were really sweet old ladies. So, like, yeah, I felt bad because we had a good time. I demonize everybody. I'm just saying, people are dumb. They're, they don't want to be smart. That's something that I always, 
I'm fascinated by. They don't want to learn. They think you're being uppity trying to tell them what to do. But no, I'm just telling you, you're going to Florida rehab that's 200 people in it, and they're making 100 grand off your insurance, and you're in a shitty spot because you're stupid because you're finding your health care over the internet Google search. Yeah, right. Right? And so I tried that for years to educate people. It doesn't work. So I went into the space of the call center space, and it's called National Addiction, National Assessment Foundation. And, and we take all comers. You can call there right now. And if you, you need help, we'll figure it out. It might take a while if you don't have resources. National Assessment and, Foundation? The National Assessment Foundation. It's, the phone number is 888-494-9186. All so, right, afflicted dopies out there. If you if you need help, if you, you need help, man, give a call. We'll put it in the show notes. Only, too. It's only treatment centers I know and trust. And there's some that you, Chris, you might disagree with. Like I, uh, I like Hazel and Betty Ford, even though Hazel and uh, yeah, Betty no, Ford I think Hazel does. You know it's what what been mean? consistently good for a long time. Did you go to Hazel yeah, No. <laughs> No. I went to Hazelden. I don't, you know, they're big on harm reduction now at the Betty Ford Center and all that. But, I mean, that's going to be anywhere. You can demonize anybody. But yeah. they've been doing good work for 35 years. So that's one of them, Betty Ford, Hazelden. Um, the, the two that I have that I, I'm owner of and case manager of, and I know that it's highly qualified people. I don't know why is the phone ringing at my hotel. <laughs> Hold on one second. Hello? Hey. Oh yeah, they can come up. It's it's um it, yeah. Can you have them come up? Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Elvis, Elvis, Satch is here and his mama. Go get them. Go meet them at the at the at the uh, at the whatever. The door. Ele- elevator. <laughs> <laughs> Don't send them out in the hallway. You don't know who's out there. <laughs> <laughs> We're in a boutique hotel in the, in the yuppie part of, of downtown. I'm sure it's safe. Right on. Right on. And you're going to go yeah. see the Red Hot Chili Peppers now. Yeah, we're going in a little while. Well, we'll tell Anthony and Flea that we say what's up. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna tell, you know, the Anthony is the most kind of protective of... of you know, you try to stay neutral about things. Everybody's trying to stay neutral about things, about talking about addiction, talking about politics. Flea is one that lays his heart on the line. He's been the most outspoken against Trump, and if it costs them fans, he doesn't care. He's brilliant, you know. He, he really is. In his Flea, playing, and his talking, he's brilliant. You know, I think that <clears throat> I think a lot of people like me have gotten discouraged because you try to educate the public, you try to believe, you try to all the progressive ideas that I just given up on. I don't. They they don't. It doesn't matter. You can't educate this population. They don't think immigrants that this whole country is based on should be able to come here. It's madness. Well, how how are you going to educate them about it? Yeah. No, we're just going to have to go to court and fight this and fight and do outsmart them. That's what I'm trying to do with my call center. That's what I'm. People are trying to do, waiting for the next Trump thing. Hey, hey, how are you guys? His hatch. All right, I gotta go, you guys. All right, Bob. Thank you so much, man. Sure, sure. Talk to you soon. Have a fun time. Fight the good fight, but be smart about it. All right, Bob. Thanks so much for calling in. Really appreciate it. We will be in touch. Okay. Enjoy bye the bye. show, man. Bye bye. All right, thanks. All right. Well, there Pretty you awesome. have it. Crazy. 
Longest, longest celebrity, maybe biggest longest celebrity call ever. That was awesome. Yeah. All right, it's going. All right, we're going to get out of here because uh, we have a lot to do and people to see and places to go. Yes. So we're out. Uh, Dopey Nation, stay oh, strong. Sorry. And no, we, sorry we didn't read an email or do all that other stuff, but it went along with Bob. It went way longer than I expected. Those yeah. are some very colorful tales, though. Colorful tales, and he's got a lot of knowledge and strong opinions. I could see why he gets along with Joe, because he's, he's like Joe. I love his voice. He's a good voice. He's, he's got a, a real... Guy. He's going to tell you he's a good heart. You're um, dying to end this episode. Why do you say that? Because I see it on you. I just want to get some food. I'm fucking hungry. You're hungry? I just, I gotta, I've been sitting in the car for eight hours today, and then I came here you and sat so down tired. for two hours. Dopey Nation, very soon I've made this video. Uh, I've put video to Dopey Episode 1, and I've only done 12 minutes, but I'm really excited to show Chris. I, I don't know if I can watch it right now. I think you're going to have to. <laughs> all but, right, so wait, wait, sorry we didn't play an email or read a review or do all that other stuff, but why don't you go drop us a review, write us an email. Join our Instagram page. Follow us on Facebook. Check out our website. Why don't you, you can call stuff. Bob Forrest's assessment line. Whatever yeah, oh, yeah, that yeah. Was. We're going to put that in the show notes if you guys didn't pick up on it so you don't have to rewind. That was a lot of information. It's a lot of information. Stay Thank strong. you. Stay strong and toodles. Are you okay? I'm very good. Toodles. You don't have to say toodles. I want to take a walk around the world. I wonder would it do me any good. Until I get some money in my pocket, then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood. But I want to be good so bad. I want to be so good, so bad, so bad. I want to be good so bad. Bad desire's all I ever had. And I want to take a ride up in the sky. Watch this airplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had